12. We're going to read together from verse 20 as we finish out the chapter this morning. It says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the truth of your word. Lord God, we ask that this morning you would give unto us eyes that see and ears that hear. Father, we ask that your word would find a fertile soil within our hearts by which the seed might take root and grow. Lord, we pray that you be glorified in this place. As we seek to honor you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at this section of Scripture, it's kind of an interesting section of Scripture, right? I mean, uh, the sermon topics for the guy eaten by worms and dying is, I don't know, a little low. Seems like a bit of a downer on a Sunday, you know, let's study about the guy who got eaten by worms. But as we take a look at it, there's a few things that I want you to see. And as we go through the scripture, I love the fact that God, as he gives us his word, every bit of it, there's a purpose and a, and a part for it to play within our lives all the way through scripture. So as we look today, here's what we know. Herod, we talked about him last week. Herod was uh, a friend of a couple of Roman uh, Caesars. Claudius is ruling at this time. And actually, Claudius came to be affirmed by the Roman Senate as a result of Herod. Herod had enough buddies in the Roman Senate to get him on. As a result, Claudius gave him the rest of Judea to rule over. No longer was there a tetrarch like there was at the time of Christ's crucifixion where you had Pilate, but now the whole rulership falls under the Herod. So this is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa II is the one Paul's going to preach to later on. Well, as we see him gathered here, he's got a couple of people that are mad at him. Tyre and Sidon. That's where Lebanon is today. And so Tyre and Sidon were, had a big population. And because they had a big population, they were, did not have the ability to raise their own food. So they had to count on other places for food. And the main place that they would count on for food was Judea. But Judea was ruled by Herod Agrippa I now. And they weren't pals. So Tyre and Sidon decide they're going to do what they can do to, to make this relationship a right relationship. So they bribe Blastus. Blastus was a personal aide. Uh, some, of the, some of your Bibles will say he was uh, the, the ruler over his bedchamber. Uh, the whole concept is he's one of his advisors. And as one of his advisors, they bribed him, got his ear. He encouraged Herod to make peace. So Herod decided to make peace at a special set of games that were occurring in Caesarea, he's going to meet them and give an oration, a speech, in the middle of the Hippodrome in Caesarea. And you remember last time, as we came to the end, we saw Peter delivered out of Herod's hands back to the disciples. And you see that Herod goes to Caesarea. 
When Herod goes to Caesarea, he had several palaces around Judea. He would just move from palace to palace based on weather. So he goes to Caesarea. Caesarea is a beach town. So I don't know how many of you guys have been to a beach town before. Idaho's a little rough for beaches, right? So uh, uh, beach towns are <laughs> pretty cool. If I'd say there's only one thing that Idaho is missing, it would be a beach. It's not enough to make me want to go to a place that has a beach. Because then you have to have all the stuff that goes with that too. But this Caesarea is in a beach. Not just any beach. It's a beach on the Mediterranean. And if you've ever had an opportunity to see the Mediterranean, um, I, I actually think I had an opportunity to see it twice. Uh, once the United States Marine Corps gave me a free tour. It was incredible. And another time, another time we actually paid to go see it. And, and uh, I think I paid both ways. But anyways, the Mediterranean is blue like turquoise. It's beautiful, beautiful place. And so there at the Mediterranean Ocean, I want you to kind of grasp the idea of the Hippodrome. The Hippodrome was uh, like a, a, a racetrack, like a horse racetrack. You guys kind of got an idea, horse racetrack. It was uh, a little longer than the, than the tracks we have today, slightly. Uh, and then the seating for the racetrack would only be on one side. So on one side you have the seating and it wrap a little bit around on the edge. And the other side of the racetrack was the Mediterranean Ocean. So it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. And they're having a series of games there. And, and some argue whether it's a series of games or Claudius' birthday. But either way, we have Herod Agrippa I there. And he's invited those from Tyre and Sidon to that place. And so there he's, he's making a speech, you know, making peace between the nations so that they're going to have food back and forth. And as he comes out to give his speech, he comes to the center of the Hippodrome. So the center of the Hippodrome would be like the middle of the racetrack. You know, the, the field in between where, where the horses would race or where they would have their chariot races. So he's in the middle of that. They always did their speeches there in the Hippodrome uh, in, the, in the cool of the evening just before the sun goes down. So if you can imagine looking over the beach, the sunset in the background... The turquoise blue water, and right down in the middle of this field, you have Herod Agrippa I. He comes out, the Bible says, wearing royal apparel. Josephus tells us that his royal apparel was made of pure silver. So he is wearing pure silver, and he's standing at sunset, looking over the Mediterranean Ocean, Sunset, sun coming down, the last rays of the setting sun shining off of the silver that he's wearing with the sunrise to the background in this beautiful beach setting. That's the setting that Herod places himself in. And then he gives an oration, he gives a speech, and, and the people are blown away by his ability to speak. He's a gifted speaker, gifted orator. Unlike the Herod that came before him, He's loved by the people. The Jewish people love this Herod. This Herod did a few things that they were really excited about. He united the kingdom once again, although it's really a puppet of the Roman Empire. He's, they're, they're somewhat united under Herod. And he was striking out against the church. And the Jewish people didn't, weren't really into what the church was about and what the church had going on. So they, they rallied around him for that. And so they're pretty stoked about him. And as he's out there giving the speech, the fellows from Tyre and Sidon are going to 
work up the crowd, build up this flattery to make sure this relationship between them all is really good. And so they begin to chant from the crowd the voice of a God and not a man. It's always dangerous when we start to believe our own press, isn't it? You know, you know, you guys know how far the journey is from hero to zero, right? <laughs> Somehow the journey from hero to zero is much shorter than from zero to hero or hero the other way. You guys know what I mean. So as we take a look at it, he, he, they, they're chanting this chant and he's soaking it in. And the scripture tells us, gives us a, an interesting story that takes place. Look what the Bible says in verse 23. As he describes to us what happens, it says, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Now, before you get too crazy of an idea, when we look at this word, the the angel of the Lord strike him, it's the exact same word for the way the angel struck Peter. You remember the Peter in the story when Peter was sleeping between the guards, right? He's snoring in between the guards, and the angel comes up and gives him a boot or hits him on the ribs, wakes him up. Exact same word. So the angel on one hand strikes Peter, wakes him up, and he's set free from bondage. On the other hand, the, the angel strikes him. And look what the scripture tells us. The scripture tells us the angel strikes him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus tells us that it took five days for Herod to die. He immediately fell sick right then, right there in the middle of the hippodrome. He collapsed. He was complaining of abdominal pains. They took him in and five days later, he was dead. His body, the history tells us, his body just began to decompose from the inside out. And it's kind of gross. But the idea is, the smell of it and all the stuff that was going on, people didn't want to be around him. He was filled with maggots and worms. Now, it wasn't an, an odd occurrence, actually, because it happened to another guy. Uh, his name was uh, Antiochus. You ever heard that name before? Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus is a guy Daniel speaks of in Daniel chapter 11, who becomes the model, if you will, for the Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes, when he conquered Jerusalem, he came in, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and declared himself to be God. Jesus pointing, and Daniel speaking about that event, Jesus pointing back to it, uses that event to describe a future Antichrist, and what he one day will do is he sets himself up to be God. But the Bible tells us that Antiochus died in the same way. And then another queen in that same area that was an enemy of, of uh, the church and of the Lord and it caused a lot of pain and, and, and hassle. The scripture, history, not the scriptures, tell us she died the same way. So it wasn't totally unheard of about what happened to him. But it just seems interesting to me as I look at the scripture that, that he dies because he doesn't give the glory to God. That, that the angel strikes him because he wouldn't give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and I don't know about you guys but I look at that and I think wow a lot of us should be having worms crawling around in us no if you're gonna pick a way to die I'm going to assume being eaten by worms is not high on your list for most of us we will be eaten by worms but not while we're living i just 
Doesn't sound good. Kathy and I were talking the other day about ways that we don't want to die. You know how that conversation comes up every once in a while? I don't remember what we saw or what we were thinking about, but, but I remember there were two things very specific that we talked about. One, falling from a great height, because I don't want to have a lot of time to think about what's going to happen, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So uh, falling is not high on the list. Second, I don't want to be eaten by anything. So I don't know if you've ever been to the beach, swimming at the beach, but you can't see what's under the water. So you swim, and it's all fun. Trust me. It's all fun. You're having a ball, swimming, waves breaking. And right about that time, a big old fish comes out the water. Now, that big old fish, we know, is a dolphin. And if you were on the shore looking at it, you would say, well, that's a dolphin. Well, you know it's a dolphin because it doesn't have two fins breaking the water. It just has one fin breaking the water. Its tail's is sideways, so it, it swims and jumps, does all those cool things we like. Shark's tail goes the other way, points up. You guys with me? But when you are in the wave and you see it, your brain don't think that fast. Your brain sees a thing above the water, and then you remember Jaws. And then shortly after that, there's blood in the water screaming, everybody runs, ah. So... And a lot of times, the sets for the waves are way out there. So you're way out there. And the those dolphins come through. And yeah, I don't want to die being eaten by a shark. You will get out of the water. That's the only time I could ever catch a wave. <laughs> only time I could ever catch a wave. Life and death situation. I got to catch this wave. I just got to be in front of the guy. Who's else trying to catch it? If I could be in front of the guy, the other guy trying to catch a wave, I'm okay. If I could just be in front of him. I don't know if that works because I was always fatter than those guys. So if you're looking for food, I probably look better than the skinny little guy on the board. You know, I was the, the plumper. Yeah. So anyways, we're talking about how we don't want to die. We don't want to die being eaten by worms. But I think it's interesting in what the scripture lays out as, as to the reason. It says he did not give glory to God. And so I was kind of chewing on that concept. What is this really about? I mean, is, is God a, a, someone who needs to hear, you know, positive affirming things? And, and how is it that we glorify God? And, and, and how do our, does our life glorify him? And how's that all look and work? And as I was, as working my way through the concept and studying through the scripture, um, I came to a quote by C.S. Lewis. And that quote by C.S. Lewis might kind of uh, open my eyes, I guess, a little bit to, to something, I don't know, I, I felt like it was kind of special for me. This is what C.S. Lewis said. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, it strangely escaped me. Well, I thought of it in terms of compliments or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. And all of a sudden I started thinking. I think about that. I mean, the things that you really love, it's not hard to praise. It's not hard to glory those things, is it? 
I mean, if you think, if you're really excited about riding motorcycles, dirt bikes, you, you don't have to work up an attitude of praise for that, do you? I mean, it's like you're stoked to go. Woohoo! Why? Because, because there's an, a, a love for that event or adventure. There's, a, there's an enjoyment in being a part of that. And so what spontaneously comes from that is the ability to praise or glory, to give glory. And then you start to look at this attitude, this concept of what does it mean to glorify God? Then we look through Scripture and we, we start to build all these concepts of things we think God wants. And I don't know, maybe some of you guys have read a book called The Five Love Languages. you guys ever read that book? Anybody? No, I'm the only one. It's a good book. You should check it out. It'll be in the bookstore if they ever open it. When they open it. But as we, as we look at that, it kind of breaks down love into five different languages, how we express love. And I've heard, you know, and I've spoke and talked with people about God's love language. And the reality is I think God's love language is all of those things, every one of them, uh, as we'll see as we work our way through. But the idea is the one thing, the simple one thing that God is looking for. What is the purpose of man? The Westminster Confession puts it like this. The chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him always. To glorify God and enjoy Him always. Now, when I was a kid, and I would hear stuff like that, glorifying God, and I'd hear people say things like, we're going to spend eternity praising the Lord. I, I, I would get depressed. So you're kidding me. I'm going to be in heaven forever with this hymnal attached to my hand, singing these songs, because that's what I thought praise was. Well, we call that praise, but just because we make you sing doesn't mean you praise. Praise is something that naturally comes out of a life that is in love with something else. Praise comes out. Because I love my wife... I will praise her. I didn't understand that for a lot of years. I didn't understand what she thought was missing in our relationship. But she was frustrated with the way I would talk to her and the things I would say. And I thought, you know, I'm just being funny. But the reality is I'm really not that funny, apparently. Uh, Jason tells me all the time I'm supposed to leave the jokes to him. Right, Jay? <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> so, so... But I would try to be funny. And in, in that being funny, what I was doing was the natural uh, outpouring of anyone who's in love with somebody else is an eruption of praise, of glory, of, of, of valuing that person. It just happens. You think about the relationships that you've had and, and you'll discover that that's something that occurs. Now, we have to deal with the issues after we've been together a long time and we start to become irritated with how the toilet paper roll goes on, whether one way or the other. You know, those things are, are separate. But when we are in love and focused, that's just natural. It just comes out. Praise just happens. It's the natural outpouring or outflow from a life that is lived in enjoyment of whatever the thing is. So when we love God and we're, our relationship with God is in a right place and we really understand who He is and what He's done for us, all that stuff's natural. You don't got to work it up. It just comes out. It just comes out. It's not just holding a book or singing a song. 
And so as we, as we, as I was, as I was chewing on this idea, what glorifies God? How's that look? And <clears throat> thinking about the concept of it being in eternity, the idea of praising God for all eternity, guys, is just simply to be in His presence and to be able to express the love that I have for Him for what He's done forever. Now that sounds different, right? It's, it's a, at least in my head, that sounds different. It's not just about what songs I like or what songs I don't like, or, or, but just the opportunity to express, to express love. God has asked us for one thing and one thing only. We think he's asked us for a lot of things. Maybe you think God's asking you for obedience. Maybe you think God's asking you for, uh, I don't know, a variety of, of, of things. You, you pick it. The reality is God is asking us for one. In Deuteronomy, it's called the Shema. And the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, He is one God. And you shall, you know the next phrase? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart. So I guess what I'm saying is, when that is true, we don't have to think about giving glory to God. Because it just comes out. It's a natural expression of the love we have for God. And as I look through the scripture and talking about what glorifies God and what does that look like, well, I found at least ten things. And we're going to talk about those ten things this morning. What glorifies God? Herod was eaten by worms because he didn't do it. So what glorifies God according to the scriptures? Well, let's take a look. The first thing that glorifies God is confessing and repenting of our sins. Confessing and repenting of our sins. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The scripture lays out for us that sin can become a barrier between us and the Lord. So in order to show love or glorify the Lord, sin gets in the way. 1 John 1.9 gives us a way to deal with it. But if we don't ever use it, it's not dealt with. And we're not glorifying the Lord. You see, it is necessary, it's a requirement for forgiveness that we confess and repent. That's a requirement for forgiveness. It's in the, you're not forgiven otherwise. Confess and repent. It's also necessary to restore fellowship. Listen to what I mean. In Psalm 90, verse 8, this is what the psalmist wrote. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Whenever the scripture, we just sang a song, right, about let your glory Shine on us the, the, the glory. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's two words. It's the word Shekinah and the word Kabad. Shekinah is, means cloud, the cloud. And Kabad means the weight. And it becomes a, a picture. Remember the cloud that followed the children of Israel? The, the Shekinah, the visible representation of God. And the weight, Kabad, the weight of His glory. And so it, it comes to, to mean the presence of the Lord, that, that His presence be in this place. Well, the scripture tells in Psalm 98 
that our iniquities come between us. Isn't that what it says? You have set your, you have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your countenance. So His glory shines a light on our sin, but it's between us. In order to shine a light on it, it has to be between me and Him. It has to be between us. It, it, it creates a shadow, if you will, between the Lord and me. For what purpose? To, to bring it to my understanding. Oh, my, there's something between me and God. So I can do what? Confess it, right? Confess it, repent, and it's gone. That's what the Lord is laying out for us. Well, in Psalm 66, 18, he says it this way. The psalmist tells us, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. You ever struggle in your prayer life and wonder why your prayers aren't answered? Now, I'm not going to say that this is the reason. I am going to say this can be a reason. When there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin in my life, I am regarding iniquity. That means I'm holding on to my sin in my life. I regard it. It's mine. And God says, as long as you're holding on to that, I won't hear you. You got to let it go. That's why it's so important for us to say, to understand what repentance means is that I agree with God. Confession. I agree with the Lord. I agree with what His Word says. What His Word calls sin is sin, period. I don't care what the the government says. I don't care what the laws say. I don't care about any of that stuff. What does the Word of God say? What the Word of God says? Then that's my issue. For me, I'm not going to regard it. I'm not going to cling to it. Because I want the Lord to hear me. It divides fellowship and hinders my ability to glorify the Lord with my life. I am hindering the shining, the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. We have such a light view of sin anymore in the church. We think it's all little. It's not a big deal. What's a big deal? This is all little stuff. But when we look at what the Scripture says, that's not what we see in the pages of Scripture So the very first way that we glorify God, the very first way that the way that I love God, that where my love of God is expressed in my life, is not because I live perfect. It doesn't say that. It says when I confess and repent. It's not about being perfect, having perfect performance. It is about being willing to confess. Oh, Lord, I sinned. Forgive me. Help me walk the way you would have me walk. If i got to say that 10,000 times a day, I am expressing my love for God by confessing and repenting. I'm confessing that I love Him, that He matters to me, whether it's secret sins or sins between individuals or public sins. And, and, and while we're talking about sins between individuals, let me, let me tell you this. I think sometimes we get that twisted up. We get that twisted up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Therefore, if you are bringing your gift to the altar, and there you remember your brother has 
something against you. I think sometimes we think it is, if I bring my altar and there I remember that I have something against my brother. That's not what it says. Listen, if you know that a brother or sister is in or out of sorts with you, the Lord says, before you give me a gift, before you offer me praise, or before you show me your love, be reconciled with your brother or sister. Now the Bible doesn't say that you have to have peace. The reality is peace depends on how many people. If there's two people upset, how many people does it take to make peace? Two people, right? But the Bible says it how? In as much as it is possible for you, be at peace. How hard is it to say, I'm sorry? What if you don't feel guilty? I don't think I did anything wrong. So I will just be danged if I'm going to say I'm sorry. I will not say it to that despicable. Let me just say right now, your life is not bringing glory to the Lord. Jesus said, before you give your offering, make peace. I'm sorry. You guys ever watch Happy Days? I was thinking about this. I think this weekend somebody talked about it in one of the... I was at a leadership conference and somebody talked about it. But my, my point's not that point. My point is, what was the hardest thing for Fonzie to say? You guys remember? I, he'd go, I'm... You guys remember? No? No? I'm speaking Japanese. He had a hard time saying sorry. Look... Whether you are guilty or not guilty, whether you have committed or not committed, Jesus said, if someone's got a problem with you, just tell them you're sorry. I'm sorry for my part in, in this relationship. Will you forgive me? Boy, I didn't do anything. It's all their fault. We've got to go back to step one. Confess and repent. And make it right. Well, every time I turn around, they're mad at me. Well, then you're going to get really good at saying, I'm sorry. I used to make people mad all the time. I think I've done it since I've been here a couple times. When I was at JS, I'm a very task-oriented guy. Task. Go do the task. And so when I'm doing a task, I have tunnel vision. When I have tunnel vision, when I see people, it's just what do I got to do to get around them? Because i got to get to that thing, whatever the thing is. So I'll be going to the deal. And I walk by people and they like, what, am I invisible? Well, really, yeah, you were. Not because I don't like you or I don't care about you. I was thinking about something i got to get to. And so frequently when I was at, at JS, I'd hear about it. Oh, so-and-so's mad. He said, you just walked by him and didn't talk to him. Pastor Gerald, would t- Kathy would tell me all the time, Jackie, because she, have you ever known Kathy, she, you ever heard her not say something nice to somebody? If you want to, come over. <laughs> that snuck by just about everybody else, but you got it, huh, babe? <clears throat> she doesn't say t- 
She, she is very, very, very positive. So she would tell me, Jack, you can't just walk by people. can't just walk by people. So I had to try to train my mind to say, slow down, there's no rush, and, and, you know, take time. Take the time to say hi. So I, would, I must have said sorry to people 10,000 times for walking by them and not saying hi and, and looking like I didn't care. And I don't try to make an excuse, and I don't try to, you know, fluff. I just say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And if they say, you know what you did, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Then the next response, hopefully, is going to sooner or later be, yes, I forgive you. And if they keep going, well, I just, you know, and, you know, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Sooner or later, you overcome. The relationship is, is at least in whatever way it can be, somewhat restored. And I have shown my Lord I love him because I'm doing what he said to do to bring him glory. Right? And how we relate to one another. The second way, first way, it's taking longer. The second way is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we confess that Jesus is Lord, we glorify the Lord. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How's it go? To the glory of God the Father. Right? When we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it brings glory to God. It glorifies the Lord. Now, we confess Him as our Lord and Savior when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. But at that point, we can live a life that is not being lived out in confession to Him. We can live a life that is being, we're, we're not confessing Him as Lord, something else is Lord. My, my career is Lord, my education is Lord, my, my music is Lord, my whatever, my truck, my bike, my anything else can be your main passion in your life, right? Your primary passion. What is, what is it that you confess as Lord? I used to work on a, on a job site. I remember uh, working, building substations. And one of the things we would do is, as you set one foundation, that foundation, they would call that foundation throughout the job, that foundation is God. And wherever you went from there, every measurement, everything you did was based on that foundation. That foundation, most important foundation there. But I had a guy I worked with, who said, this is the dumbest thing I ever heard of. I'm not going to call that dumb thing God. That pillar is not God. There's only one God. His name is Jesus Christ. And I remember all of us on the job site thinking, this is the dumbest thing I have ever argued about in my life. Now I look at it differently. I wonder to myself, who was God more well pleased with? The one who... Loved God enough to say, I'm not going to call this dumb pillar God. Or the one who thought it was dumb to argue about it in the first place. Which one expressed more love? Which one was it, was the outward expression of an inward love for their Savior? Which comes forth in bringing glory to God. So when we confess, Jesus is our Lord. He is our primary passion. The reason we do the things we do. We are glorifying God. It's an outward expression of a love within us. The third thing we see that brings glory or that, that brings glory to the Lord is when we pray 
in Jesus' name. And when I say that, I don't mean like we pray. You know, when we sit down and we pray and we always say in in Jesus' name at the end. Because that has become the benediction of every prayer almost since the dawn of the church. Because it says, pray in Jesus' name. The easiest way to make sure you do that is to put it in the prayer. But actually it requires a little more than just the words, right? Than just the words. When we pray in Jesus' name, John 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Brings glory to God. When we ask... In Jesus' name. Now what does that mean? That phrase simply means according to the character of. When our prayers are according to the character of Jesus Christ. Not that we uh, 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 affix a, a, what am I trying to say? Suffix at the end of our prayers. But rather that we have the attitude of Christ in our prayers. That we are in agreement with His Word. That we are in alignment with His will. That our lives reflect Jesus Christ. And so as we pray, we pray like Jesus, according to His character, the way He would pray. And the Lord says, I will always answer those prayers. And God is glorified when you pray that way because it's an outward expression of the love you have for God inside. It's natural. You don't have to work it up. You don't have to try to make it happen. If you love God, that happens. If we love God, if we're struggling with our ability to love God, guys, it's not because God hasn't done what we expect Him to do in our life. It's because we have a bad view of who God is. We're running God through the lens of our life or our experience, and we're making our experience the judge over what is good or not good about God rather than the Word of God. The Word of God is perfect. And the Word of God will instruct us and guide us and lead us and show us who God is. Not my experience. My experience is very one-sided. Do you know my experience is very one-sided? For example, I had a whole story about the desitin this morning. Pretty one-sided story, right? I didn't say to you that the desitin had been in that drawer for like 15 years. The last time we had a baby was a long time ago, huh? It's been there forever. And never before did I find the need to put it on my toothbrush. So I I tell a story very one-sided from my point of view, and that's what we do when we look at God and we're disappointed with God in our life. We are rolling the camera from our point of view, from our angle of view, and we're not taking into consideration who God is and what God has done. If we don't have an accurate view of who God is, you will not love God. If you want to love God, you've got to know God. You've got to know Him. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, for God is love, right? Everyone who loves God knows God. we got to know Him. you got to know who He is. You can't weigh it according to your experience in your life. you got to weigh it according to Him, who He is, what He has done, what He has given, not your experience of it. But the truth, in truth, what the Word of God lays out for us. The fourth thing that the Scripture says, ways that we glorify the Lord, is to abstain from sexual immorality. Interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, it says, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. 
But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. When we make a choice to live our lives outside of the attitude of our world, which is to exchange a relationship with God for instant gratification, we think we're turning from God to pleasure. But if you've been around very long, you understand instant gratification is not always the right thing, right? In fact, almost never. I say almost because somebody will have a case when this is over, for why it could be good. So I will say almost. Instant gratification is not the way to go. The Lord says, if you love me, natural outpouring of your love for me will be living a sexually pure life. Because that sin is not only against the Lord, it's against you, personally. It's against your body. It damages you and whenever we talk about this, especially when I talk about it among youngsters, they always want to know, well, what's too far? What's too far? What's the Bible say? You're not going to like it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, somewhere around there, the scripture says, it is not good for a man to touch a woman. Wow, I love how the Bible just draws the line and... There's no gray if it's that way, right? Well, defying touch. Okay. I choose to define touch as touch. The point is, what we want to do is live a life where we are focused on loving the Lord and our relationship with the Lord and God who created marriage, God who created sex, God who created all of this for what? To be enjoyed and to be a blessing in our life. Is that the way it is in our world today? Is that a blessing in lives? Think about all the damage we do to one another because we don't appropriate what God has given as a gift. We take it and we distort it. We listen to the lies of the devil. We want instant gratification. We want what we want. We want it how we want it, when we want it, and bang. And that's just how it's going to be. If I want my life to glorify God, then that's an area of my life that I've got to submit to Him. That I've got to give over to him. That's what the scripture lays out for us. That we would stay away from sexual sin. The fifth thing in, in glorifying God is that we would bear much fruit. That our lives would bear much fruit. John 15, 7 and 8 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Now, about this time, when I was younger, I would think, wow, Mike, you know, I don't know if anybody's ever come to the Lord Jesus as a result of my witness, so I don't know if i got any fruit. Well, let's take a, a little jaunt through the Word of God and figure out what fruit is. Because while someone giving their life to Jesus Christ is fruit, that's not the only thing that's fruit. The Scripture tells us several things. One, good works. Any good works that we do are considered fruit by God. Colossians 1.10 That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. 
good works. When we do good works, it is bearing fruit. Another way that we bear fruit is through praise and thankfulness. Hebrews 13, verse 15 says, Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise unto God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. The sacrifice of praise is the fruit of our lips. Fruit. Bear much fruit. That glorifies God when we praise Him. When we're thankful. When we do good works, good deeds, good things that we do in the name of the Lord. The third thing that we see that is good fruit is a proper attitude. Oh, that one gets me a lot. Does that ever get you? Galatians tells us, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is the section of Scripture that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It says in Galatians 5, 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is these attitudes working through our lives. That's bearing forth fruit. It's not just about bringing people to the Lord, although that is very important and ought also to be a part. But that's not the only way you're fruitful. If you are truly in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, you desire to to please Him and live for Him, you don't have to work fruit up. Fruit just happens. It's a natural outflow or outpouring of your love for God. And it comes out in that you bear much fruit. Winning people to Christ, John 15, 16. Same thing, bearing forth fruit. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Go, win souls, again, bearing forth fruit. The sixth thing that we do that brings glory to God, that's glorifying to Him is to respond to other parts of the body of Christ with unity. To respond to other parts of the body of Christ with unity. Romans 15, verses 5 through 7. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. With one mind, one mouth, unified together the body of Christ. Well, the reality is most people's experience in the body of Christ is is our differences. Right? But the natural outpouring of your love for God and what is glorifying to Him is when we work together in unity. That we're unified and we choose not to be divided by the non-essential issues. Who Jesus Christ is, is an essential issue. But, whether or not there's going to be a millennial reign, is not an essential issue. It's not essential. I, I think I understand why and how, and I'm more than happy to debate and talk, but I will not break fellowship over that. It's not an issue in regard to salvation. There must be unity 
within the body. It speaks of our love, our natural outpouring of love to God. Seventh thing, supplying the needs for other believers. When people are down and out, helping them out. It says in 2 Corinthians 9.12, For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and with all men. When we help each other out, it glorifies God. The Lord said, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That's supposed to be our role. And it's not something that we should be looking solely to the church to perform, but that we should be looking for ways that we can be a part of it as a part of the church. That we come together and we're there to help one another out. I've always loved that, that attitude in, in our church here because somebody's got cancer and they need meals. we got meals coming to them. If we know about the need, we are going to be able to fulfill the need. Now those needs are going to be prioritized, I'm sorry to say, because there's a lot of needs that come through those front doors. So as you can imagine, there are some needs that are going to be high priority, right? That Where people really need something, and there's other needs that are going to be lower priority that we will get to, just give us time, <laughs> to get to those non-emergency, non-essentials. But we want to be able to love one another in, in truth and in deed by what we do and how we offer, and the scripture lays out for us, that that glorifies God. It's a natural outpouring of my love for God. It's how I glorify Him in my life, by helping to meet the needs of other believers, of where people are, are having a hard time. The eighth thing may be a little difficult to swallow. You glorify God when you suffer for Him. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is about to try you, as though some strange thing has happened. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. For if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. When we suffer for Christ, it is a way that we show God we love him. We love him. Jesus gave us fair warning, folks. The Bible for every one of us in this room was written 2,000 years before most of you were born. So, Jesus said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In order to earn the smile of heaven, you automatically will earn the frown of hell. Do you understand that? To work on the Lord's side is to become an enemy of the devil, who is the God of this age. If you think, if you're busy doing things for the Lord, that He's just going to sit back and let you roll free pass, <coughs> you're outside your head. He ain't going to. He is going to bring it. And you can quit. Quitting's easy. Quitting is a piece of cake. Or, 
you can glorify God by saying, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life as dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to quit. I don't care what happens or has happened. If I think God has somehow done me wrong, I just don't have all the information. And if I had all the information, I would see it. So in the meantime, since I don't have it all, I choose to trust Him instead of my feelings or this world. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust what His Word says. So the Bible says the natural outpouring of our love for the Lord comes out when we suffer for Him. Not when we suffer because we're dumb. Or because we do something stupid. If I steal a car and go to prison, that's not suffering for the name of Christ. You guys with me? Suffering for Him because of my faith in Him. Number nine, learning to trust God in all circumstances glorifies God. I heard Bob say it, and and Bob Caldwell, and I don't remember how he said it. But basically it was like this. We will abolish the thief of unbelief. I don't think he said abolish. But you guys get what I mean, right? The thief of unbelief that comes to rob us. Rather the point of this is trusting in God and His promises more than our circumstances. Glorifies God. When you trust in God and His promises more than your circumstances, you glorify God. So we got to abolish the thief of unbelief. The thief of unbelief says, Oh, this woe is me. It's never going to get better. God can't help me. This is bad. That's the thief of unbelief. Rob you of joy, power, strength. But if we want to have the natural outpouring of our love in our life, we're going to trust God in our circumstances. Romans chapter 4, 19 through 21. Tell us about Abraham. You guys remember Abraham, right? It says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He glorified God by believing God's promise more than his circumstance. And it took 25 years, by the way, from the first mention of the promise to Abraham to have a child until Abraham had a child. That's a long time to wait. But Scripture says he did not waver. He trusted in God. He put his faith and hope in the Lord God Almighty. He he placed all his trust in Him. The tenth thing, the last thing, the last way that we glorify God is by giving Him the credit. Giving Him the credit for for creation. Giving Him the credit for salvation. Giving Him the credit for our healing. Even if the doctors were involved. Giving Him the credit for everything that we have. Scripture lays those out. Those Those are easy to find. Giving the Lord the credit. But what's our problem in it all? What's our problem? Our problem, guys, is Romans 3.23. Do you know it? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which brings us back to number one. Confess and repent. The natural expression of love to God is what Herod was guilty of not giving. 
His time came, the time of his judgment rolled around. The time of Nebuchadnezzar's judgment came. The time of Shennacherib's judgment came. The time of every man's judgment will come. What you have done with the gift that Jesus Christ has given is the only thing that is going to save. The only thing that is going to restore. So when we look at what C.S. Lewis said in the concept of, of understanding that praise erupts, from something that's been enjoyed spontaneously. It happens. You don't work it up. It comes. If we love the Lord, if we know Him, we love Him. And if we love Him, we glorify Him in our life. The natural outpouring of our love to God. Those are the things that we need to see. If those aren't the things that are our experience, if that's not our experience with the Lord, we need to know Him need to know him maybe we just have a fraction maybe we just have a piece of religion maybe we just got a a little bit and we don't really fully understand the height the breadth the width the depth of the love of god poured out for you and i in christ jesus our lord paul said that was the the ultimate way to spend your life that you might know him and the power of his resurrection being conformed to his death if by any means we might attain to salvation, perfection in Christ. That's a good way to spend our life seeking to know Him more and glorify the Lord. Amen? Amen. And we're going to have a time right now as we worship of, of coming before the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And get set. But here's what we want to do. We're going to just go before the Lord in, uh, in an attitude of praise and worship. And I just invite you, for, for if we have uh, elders or prayer counselors or whatever, to be around the room where, where you can be available for prayer. But as the Lord moves, as your heart is in that place where you understand the, the things that God has done for you, when you got a, a nice, solid grasp, I want to invite you to come up, because the Lord's Supper is one of the ways we glorify the Lord. Jesus said to do this until I come again. So when we do this, we do proclaim the Lord's death till He come. We proclaim that this is His body and this is His blood, that He died for me. I'm making a stance, I'm making a choice. So as, as we worship and as we just go before the Lord and we enter to glorify Him and to give Him praise, as you're, as you're prepared, as your heart is good, I want to invite you to come. Listen, the only rule for partaking in the Lord's Supper is that you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. If that's who you are, please come and partake. Be welcome. If that's not who you are, I want to invite you to know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and then come. And partake of the Lord's Supper. Because God has given such a gift. Such a gift. Such a blessing. That we can be a part of it. So we have laid out before you as we worship the body and the blood of Christ. And we want to allow the Holy Spirit to move. We want to allow the Holy Spirit to, to just grip our hearts as we prepare our hearts. And as your hearts are prepared, we invite you just to come up and receive the Lord's Supper here at the table. Up here at the altar, the steps, back in your seat, wherever you're comfortable. We want to invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper until He comes.